You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to Soupcast, coming to you from Archaeosoup Towers. By popular demand, we're taking selected videos from the Archaeosoup back catalogue and bringing them to you as convenient podcasts. As the name implies, with Archaeosoup you get a bit of everything thrown into the pot. Archaeology, discussion, humour and debate. You can find out more at archaeosoup.com. So sit back, relax and enjoy our hearty helping of Archaeosoup. Welcome back to Watching Brief for the week of the 28th of January, 2022. Uh, I suppose we're recording at the beginning of February, so this feels more like a February Watching Brief than a January one. But nonetheless, uh, I am joined by my co-host, Mr Andrew. Come on, come on, Mark, 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 Mark. We're we're archaeologists, we're allowed a bit of flexibility on dates. (laughs) Well, indeed, they haven't been, the calibration hasn't been uh, performed on this particular set of results, so, you know. Uh, Absolutely, I I need to go and consult my bristlecone, I need to go and consult my bristlecone pine. Absolutely, absolutely. (laughs) But regardless of uh, of our margin forever, uh, we have our ongoing watching brief that this week encompasses a couple of stories that we think are uh, are important, that are worthwhile looking at, including um, some print-operable PDF-type things. I've printed off this document here, um, Evidence Milord. Um, and also as well, uh, we also want to highlight right at the beginning of this, uh, this week's episode that this week's link of the week, and I suppose of the month, I guess, to a certain extent, or rather pointing to this month, is for the LGBT plus uh, history month. Um, we've linked to the .co.uk uh, website for that. Um, but I do believe uh, there's events are happening all over the country, and it's that's also well worth checking out. So, ah, so lots to look at, lots down below, loads of links. Do check them out. But we're going to begin, I suppose, with the... Uh, not so much with the crisis... <laughs> that we've pointed to in this video's title, but rather uh, with, um, oh, I don't know, is it a brewing crisis possibly in the Portal Antiquity Scheme? I don't think it's a brewing crisis. I think it's a, um, if you like, a canary down the coal mine mm. of UK or English in particular metal detecting, English and Welsh metal detecting. Uh-huh. Um, it's an article that has been published in the latest edition of the Searcher magazine, which is a metal detecting magazine, um, authored by Professor Michael Lewis, who's the head of the Portable Antiquity Scheme, uh, who's based at the British Museum. Mm. And again, uh, our regular viewer will remember that the Portable Antiquity Scheme is the voluntary scheme whereby any member of the public, but it's mostly metal detectorists, uh, can report archaeological finds to what's called a finds liaison officer, mm. uh, who are regionally based. Um, and it can be entered onto a national database, which is then accessible to the public. And if you make an application, and uh, the more detailed information is available to bona fide researchers. Yeah. So it's a really important research tool, um, but it's also controversial, partly because it is only voluntary. Um, there's no compulsion on anyone to record any archaeological find that they come across at, unless it's treasure under the Treasure Act, in which case mm-hmm. it's an offence not to report it. Mm-hmm. Um, but also um, some archaeologists argue that it is too permissive in terms of letting metal detectorists off the hook in terms of um, n- n- either not reporting 
or not reporting in detail um, and almost sort of in, um, encouraging metal detecting as an acceptable way of recovering historic archaeological finds. Um, some archaeologists argue that it shouldn't be recovered like that by members of the public. Well, it's, so, it's, it's interesting because, I mean, recently we've covered a story, haven't we, where it's strongly suspected that metal detectorists have been using this database and others as a way of targeting their their investigations and looking for, for sites where there's likely to be metal in the ground. And indeed, uh, eagle-eyed viewers of Archaeosoups, um, especially the Facebook page, will note a conversation that unfolded surrounding a video that was featured in the BBC Archaeology News thread, um, where there's the, 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 uh, a, a young lady, um, I say because I'm increasingly old, <laughs> was... Um, was Not as uh, old as me. No, no. Was featured... <laughs> As uh, you know, a young treasure hunter, she was giving her hints and tips on how to find and what to do. And there was some um, there was some written uh, subtitles in the video that did point to needing to get permission, for example, from the landowner. Uh, but the 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 tone was one of, for example, she mentioned a couple of resources there as well, where these are databases that help you find things that you may well be able to find as as, as recoverable and maybe even sellable artifacts so uh, right. it, it's it's in the water it's in the water isn't it that's that's right mm. now this particular article by professor lewis is about uh metal detecting rallies metal detecting rallies is a it, it's it's a, a form of metal detecting that's really grown like topsy over the last few years mm. um and um Essentially, what happens is an individual or group of individuals get a permission from a farmer, mm -hmm. a landowner, and then stage a rally for metal detectorists, which they charge for. Mm. Um, they are in men uh, they're very controversial because, for, well, for two reasons. Firstly, the sheer numbers of people involved. Um, it's been likened to strip mining fields of, of archaeological material. Mm -hmm. um, and... Adding to the problem that that perceived problem is the it uh, the and as Professor Lewis points out in the article that that sheer number of people recovering potentially a lot of fines in the course of you know one one day even would completely overwhelm the ability of a local fines liaison officer to upload the information to the database even if it was all recorded. Yeah, well, and uh, were, were this a crop? Uh, this would be akin to a work gang, you know. That's right. F going through the field and getting what they what they can, having to process it in bulk in that sense, what was recovered. So, yeah, it's potentially an awful lot of work for the local FLO. Exactly. Mm. Um, and potentially a lot of archaeological material that doesn't get either fully recorded or worse, not isn't recorded at all. Yeah. Um, now, it, as I say, it, it's a... Perceived as a problem in the archaeological world that's been growing substantially over the last few years. A regular, you know, our regular viewer, regular readers of the pipeline will have seen a number of stories about uh, metal detecting rallies, including uh, you know the use of HERs as we you know we've talked about to, to, to specifically target known archaeology that isn't protected by scheduling. Mm. So, um, what Professor Lewis is doing in this uh, article, and I say it's in the Searcher magazine, which is perhaps uh, it's one of the probably two mainstream metal detecting magazines, but of the two, the other one being uh, Treasure Hunter. Mm. Um, the Searcher is probably the more traditional 
uh, perhaps slightly more um, conservative small C in terms of the hobby. Mm-hmm. Um, it's billed as an exclusive briefing. Um, and what Professor Lewis does is, is lay out potential issues in terms of rallies and the PAS and the failure, uh, you know, the, the importance of reporting fines fully with proper grid references and, 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 uh, and, and so on. Uh, and then he basically says, what is a good rally? Um, is it possible to have a good rally? And to cut to the chase, uh, he suggests that as they're basically commercial operations, so, so, some rally organisers claim to be uh, entirely charitable or partially charitable, but essentially most rallies are money-making operations for the landowner and for the organiser. Yeah. I mean, often, um, often the charitable, uh, charitable elements uh, point to, for, ex- uh, for example, veterans, charities and this sort of thing, don't they? Uh, yeah, yeah, children's charities, local hospices, that kind, that yeah. kind of thing, which is which is fine. You know, charitable yeah. fundraising is a is the one of the um, is is, a, is in the bedrock of of, of you know provision uh, 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 to uh, uh, facilities of services to people in need in this country. So you know, mm. not going to knock that. No. The the issue is how much of of that is sometimes a cover for what's actually a money making operation. Mm. But anyway, that, that's that's another argument for another day. Mm. What Professor Lewis does in this particular case is say, look, um, rallies potentially make quite a lot of money. Um, and therefore, they need to do more to support the recording process because the PAS is basically a free service to them. Um, and what he suggests is, I'm quoting here, uh, they must put their hand in their pocket to help you. Um and then he goes on to suggest that rally organisers should go a little bit further, that they should inform the relevant local authority, historic environment record officer, and the fines liaison officer for the area in advance of any rally, um, with the expectation that, assuming their workload allows, they can offer, first of all, advice on best practice, mm-hmm. which might mean actually avoid that site because it's too sensitive Mm. he doesn't say so but that's one of the implications there Mm -hmm. um and also um advise on on fines recording systems and then he says and this is again this is um one of the most serious um suggestions he suggests that rally organizers should employ a suitably qualified archaeologist to advise on best practice including fines recording legal aspects related to fines um and the archaeological assessment of in situ fines on the day um, and uh, a suitably experienced and qualified fines team to triage fines and identify items that should be reported as treasure and or recorded on the PAS database. Um, and, and then, again, use suitably qualified and experienced fines experts to do the recording on the PAS database. Mm. So uh, it's basically a way of trying to increase the amount of material that's recorded and uploaded to the PAS database and putting the onus on the um, on the rally organisers to organise that and above all to pay for it. Now, this is where it starts to get interesting because this is asking for basically an honour system. Mm-hmm. It's It would be purely voluntary. Mm. Um, there is no, currently no legal requirement for, as I said, for, a fi- for fines to be recorded unless they're treasure fines. 
so you did, did, you can see where you can see where the problem lies here, can't you? you but yeah, uh, <clears throat> yeah. Um, I'm trying not to be cynical. Um, <laughs> does the author have any cynical. any mode by which they might speculate on the affordability of such measures for such events? I.e., do they publish their books? Do they have a tax return? Is there something that 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 that, that might uh, that might uh, make this discussion a little bit more formal as opposed to um, nice suggestions? Right. Well, first of all, metal detecting rallies are virtually unregulated, as are the organisers. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'll leave. I'll leave that there. Okay. Um, I think. This has to be seen in the context of the consultation with the Department of Culture, Media and Sport and Digital mm -hmm. um, over a reform of the Treasure Act, which would extend the definition of treasure to material that doesn't have a precious metals content, but does have historical value. Yeah, yeah. Um, and one of the suggestions there is that uh, if you extend that definition you have to have a means of identifying the material in the first place before you can even decide whether it has historical value so it is moving towards potentially um some form of compulsory recording now obviously that would have to be supported by resources in the field does that mean licensing well everybody says at the moment they're against licensing um i think there's an uh, uh, but I, I do think there's a subtext to this which is by lying out, uh, laying out such a clear agenda, what Professor Lewis is doing is saying, basically, last chance saloon, folks. Mm. Either you self-regulate and mitigate the environmental damage that arguably you are doing to the historic environment, mm -hmm. or we will regulate you ourselves. And we know also that the future rally was, was part of the consultation with the Department for Digital Culture, Media and Sport. Okay, uh, and I suppose also as well there's an opportunity there for the metal detecting community who frequently at this sort of point in the conversation say that they do it mainly for the love of history and and also as well they do have, and as, as I've said many times in, in the past, a, a remarkable repository of knowledge. An awful lot of people yeah. have essentially specialist knowledge on particular items that they're likely to recover. That, that, that this is an opportunity for them to to prove to show their love, as it were, and to to deploy that expertise, uh, and sort the house out before the house needs to be sorted for them. That's right, and and in effect, what Professor Lewis is doing is basically asking the thousands of metal detectorists who take part in legal metal detecting every week. Mm to put pressure on the not more than a hundred people who actually organize these rallies yeah in fact it's probably less than that yeah much less than that mm. and basically say you know what you're doing now isn't acceptable going forward it's not sustainable going forward we need to reform ourselves or we will be reformed I know, I know you said that we would leave it there just before, but uh, I'm just going to push just a little bit more on the economic side of things. My understanding is that the, the, the payment tends to be in cash on the day. Um, would, would part of these potential restructuring 
endeavours involve transparent bookkeeping, potentially, hypothetically, where it's, not, where it's not already the case. Yeah. That's an issue for the authorities, like in particular, imagine Majesty's Revenue and Customs, the, the tax man. Yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. Okay, well, as you said, this is something, this is one of the things that we're talking about this week that we're, we're going to be returning to again in the future. I did, I, I did double check, folks, before we recorded that, that we don't, it feels sometimes as though we often talk about metal detecting, but actually, if you look at our watching briefs, it's not, it's not as often as it, as it sometimes feels. So so uh, we will return to this sub subject, but hopefully not, as it were, uh, next week necessarily. Um, but I think, well, actually, yeah. what, what, uh, that's, a good, that's a good point. And, you know, people have said we're, you know, anti-metal detectorists and that accusation has certainly been laid against me in the past. Yeah. Um, and, 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 and I say, you know, I'm, I'm not, you know, as it stands in the UK at the moment, or in most of the UK at the moment, you know, metal detecting, is perfectly legal if it's undertaken with permission and so on. And uh -huh. many metal detectorists cooperate with archaeologists. So it's, it, it's not an issue of good and evil. No. Um, it is an issue of, if you like, I think, social responsibility. And we cover metal detecting stories. I certainly cover metal detecting stories when I think there's a public interest. I don't just do a metal detecting story for the sake of it. I, you know, I, I, I talk about the issue when I think it's relevant, when I think people will be interested, and when I think it's something people need to make their minds up about. Yeah, absolutely. And in that sense, there are archaeologists out there who make this their specialist subject. Uh, but uh, but, but we, we, we try to, as you say, comment on it when, when there's public interest. Uh, moving on to our second portion, uh, in this instance, um, the, 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 the paper that I hinted at earlier, uh, which was titled Crisis, What Crisis? Archaeology Under Pressure in the United Kingdom. This is written by Paul Belford of the uh, Cluid Powys Archaeological Trust. And many other things. He's had a long and distinguished career in archaeology. Um, he's uh, been a board member of the Charter Institute for Archaeologists. Yeah. yeah. Um, he's currently the chair of the Black Country Living History Museum in the in the West Midlands, a place I know really well. It's absolutely fant it's a fantastic site. Do it, anyone who's ever in the area of uh, Dudley in the West Midlands, do visit the Black Country Museum. Yeah, and um, uh, also chair of the uh, EAA Urban Archaeology Community as well. Absolutely, the yeah. European Ar Association for Archaeology is now the European Archaeological Association. One of the, uh, I can't remember, one of the uh, which way around that goes. Yeah. But, yes. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, that's not how you pronounce it. It's EAA. It's not ER. Um, but anyway, that's the, right. <laughs> the point is, yeah. this is an archaeologist um, uh, who is a venerable figure who is writing. Um, about this question of whether or not there's a crisis in UK archaeology. Now, this is a word that has become quite a hot potato in UK archaeology over the past year or so. Uh, well, that's, so that, I mean, that's right. I mean, I, I, our viewer might remember when we uh, covered the issue of uh, whether archaeological organisations had, um, shall we say, cooperated with each other to... Um, draw attention away from an independent archaeological campaign, the campaign to save British archaeology, um, mm. Chris Whitwood's campaign. Um, and we were told in the course of researching that, that certainly Dr. Neil Redfern of the CBA did not want to create the impression that archaeology was in crisis. He felt that was counterproductive for the campaign that they do. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but despite that, 
Uh, lots of people at, at academic institutions across the country have quite happily used the word crisis uh, and the notion of an unfolding um, uh, situation um, that, 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 that has led to this paper, which is... Um, well, as the abstract says, uh, archaeology in the UK is facing a series of challenges which potentially threaten current systems for delivering archaeological services and training uh, of new generations of professionals. Some of these are external problems, such as proposed changes to the planning system and the realignment of government priorities for culture and education. We've touched on these uh, in recent watching briefs uh, in the past year or so. Yeah. Uh, others are long-standing internal issues, like the persistently poor profitability of so-called commercial archaeology and the lack of diversity in the sector. However, the profession is unable and in some cases unwilling to develop long-term solutions, solutions to these challenges. These are potential opportunities to reshape professional archaeology in the UK for the better, but embedded interests make change difficult. And I would, I suppose, kick us off just by saying it's telling that this was not published in a British journal, was it, Andy? No, um, it was published actually, uh, first of all, online mm -hmm. um, in a, uh, a German journal, in fact, a journal called uh, uh, Archaeologische Informationen. 44. Mm -hmm. um, my, apologies for my German there, which is non-existent. So, um, but... Um, I, could, I, could, I could hear you geeing up for taking a run at the summit there. You're like, uh, <laughs> oh, oh. But yes, yeah, I'm sure people will think of this, yeah. Yeah, basically, it's, it's a German archaeological journal. It's been published early access, um, open access as well. All credit to them for that. Mm -hmm. um, and actually, it's been turned around quite quickly. Um, yeah. If you look at the, um, the information date stamps, um, the article was received by the journal on the 3rd of November. Mm. Um, it went through the journal's normal editing and peer review process, I would imagine, um, mm -hmm. within six weeks and was published on the 31st of January. Yeah. So um, it's, it's you know, we use the phrase hot off the press sometimes jokingly, but in archaeological terms, that's a very quick turnaround. Yeah, but well, interesting, um, interesting, I suppose, what I would say from a... Um, you know, when you look at papers regularly, you'll notice certain things that haven't quite been done yet to this one. So it says, for example, that the pagination is preliminary, but also I'd say yes. that some of the um, some of the um, the justification in terms of the text is is not yet done. I think or finished. There are lots of broken up words. So so in that sense, it's the information has been put out as hot as possible. If anything, you know, it's a little bit it's a little bit um, underbaked uh, in terms of its the icing maybe on the cake. If that makes uh, but sense. I, I think that I think the the, the, con, the contact the content the, is there. If you, to, 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 to take that analogy, yeah, the the, the 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 ingredients in the cake are nourishing and somewhat crunchy. Yes, yes. Um, to, to to put it to, to, to be a bit more. <laughs> let's let's put let's, let's put that away. Let's put let's put the cake away. Yeah. <laughs> okay, on you go. We, yes. In, in, in effect, this this discussion was actually ambushed by cake. Yeah. It shouldn't have been. <laughs> Um, no, in, in, all, in all seriousness, I, mean, I, I think this is one of the most important articles I've read in some time in mm. terms of archaeological theory and practice. Mm. Um, now, okay, I might say that might I, because it actually um, is an, uh, someone independent of the work that we've done and the discussions that we've had, picking up on many of the same issues. Yes. Um, and doing it in a way that is evidence-based and lucidly written 
and uh, I mean, when I when I first saw this the other day, I saw it the day after it was published. It popped up on on my Twitter feed, and I read it and immediately tweeted out and say, "Look, everybody, read this, share this, because it's pretty darn important." Mm, mm. Um, and well, I believe, fact, I believe I, you just tried to get a grenade. I did, and I did that very deliberately. It's it, it because it's it, it's a grenade that's sort of been thrown into the middle of the archaeological establishments. Um, one of the things that Dr. Belford does is talk about uh, and illustrate, actually, with graphics, um, what he describes as the ecosystem of UK archaeology, of English archaeology, um, which takes in you know, uh, commercial archaeology, museum archaeology, mm-hmm. higher education, community, and so on. Uh, and, and, um, so, and, and, and each of those areas comes in for... Uh, support but also sometimes quite stringent criticism yes well i mean he describes um, he describes uh, quote inherent weaknesses for example he's naming individual bodies he's putting them into the into relationships and actually it's funny when i first saw these um these diagrams i couldn't help but think that uh, uh people like colin renfrew would be very proud of them they're very um very processual. <laughs> like, yes. Know, the Wheel of Civilization, I think, was one of Renfrew's um, favourites. Um, yes. Yeah, so and they're nicely coloured as well. Anyway, yeah. that, that, that to one side. One of the most interesting graphics, I think, is that he um, has a, five t- uh, a five-legged um, profession, basically, mm. with regulators, practitioners, national heritage bodies like Caddo and Historic England, uh, research and teaching through institutes of higher education and, and of course the public and then he tries to locate various organizations like council for british archaeology society of antiquaries uh and so on within the, the uh, you know within those bubbles mm. um and there's arizona it, 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 look we can describe it as much as we like i think people should just basically go out find the article and read it and yeah. then above all respond to it because what it is um it's it's basically a call to action mm. Um, it's saying some, as I say, some quite tough things, like, for example, um, that in Belford's opinion, a lot of, and this, remember, this is somebody who works for, uh, you know, runs an archaeological trust, mm-hmm. um, that a lot of, for example, developer, fun, developer funded archaeology is of little to no value because it's done basically to tick a box on the development, sk- on, 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 you know, on a development application, on a yeah. planning application. Yeah. That's that you know that that is really tough. At the same time, quite rightly, he talks about the threat to developer-funded archaeology from any weakening of the developer pays, the polluter pays principle in mm. environmental legislation. Which again, the government just earlier on this week, the the UK government um, announced a Brexit benefits bill, which will be a bonfire of red tape. Um, oh, you dropped you dropped the alliteration right at red tape there. Breakfast, benefit, breakfast, no, sorry, Brexit benefits bill. That would be a, what was it, a bonfire of? Bonfire of red tape. Oh, bonfire of, I don't know, what would it be, banality at the border? There you go. Hey! <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Look, I mean, uh, uh, yeah, that, that one of those Brexit benefits to some people on the libertarian right side of British politics has been to f- you know, free up the market by removing legislation that requires, you know, um, well, as um, you know, Boris Johnson, the current Prime Minister for now, um, as Attendeck said, um, but uh, the current Prime Minister said was, uh, was it bat counting? 
Mm. Yeah, um, yeah backgrounding. Uh, or, for example, the opening uh, yeah. of free ports, uh, you know, in terms of the yeah. movement of goods. Is kind of, yeah. yeah. Mm. Look, I mean, like I say, if, if we go to Belfort's conclusion, um, he is absolutely, uh, absolutely clear. Uh, he says archaeology in the UK is in crisis. That mm. won't be popular with some people, as we suggested in in, in uh, archaeological organisations. And then he says the first thing archaeologists archaeologists need to do is recognise that this is a crisis that will affect all of us, mm-hmm. and that individual campaigns will essentially rearguard actions to defend a system which is structurally fragmented and systemically weak. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then. This is, I think this is the sentence that really struck me uh, more than perhaps all the others. And it is probably, again, one of the more, one of the most controversial. And mm-hmm. I, I'm, I'm not going to comment on it any further than just to read it out, because I think um, people need to interrogate it themselves and then think very hard about the sector they're a part of. Because mm-hmm. it says, while the small size of the sector could foster collegiality, in practice, personalities have a disproportionate influence on relationships between organisations. And then he adds, joint advocacy is difficult to coordinate. The status quo is philosophically difficult to defend, but radical restructuring, however desirable, is practically impossible. Yeah, yeah. And the reason he says that is there are too many vested interests in maintaining the current system, including some of the myriad bodies that purport to represent archaeology and archaeologists. Mm-hmm. I would ask our viewer who cares about this subject, and if they've stuck with us this far, they do care about archaeology, to ask who those organisations and individuals are and what can be done to bypass that influence, that blocking of a debate of the discussion and maybe some very difficult solutions. Yeah, and again, with the view to, to to tiptoeing around that a little bit, I would I would add maybe think a little bit about the the democratization potentially of archaeology and how mm. such organisations and certain potential individuals, hypothetically speaking, may not enjoy um, the prospect of of a broader uh, systematic change because. Yeah, more power for more people isn't is less power for for some people, I suppose you could say. Now, yeah. um, uh, interestingly as well, in the the penultimate paragraph prior to the conclusion, see that's another alliteration. Penultimate paragraph. Um, um, uh, we have here um, a very interesting observation that, um, in other words, lots of archaeology is neither. I'm quoting here neither designed to increase fundamental understanding nor to deliver meaningful use. Clearly, any work being done under such circumstances is of no public benefit and is of very limited benefit to the discipline of archaeology and archaeologists. Yes. This creates a problem. If a large proportion of the archaeological work being done in the United Kingdom, I insert, is essentially pointless, then how can it be possibly be justified uh, asking anyone, public or private, to pay for it? In the face of rising sea levels, mass extinctions and unsustainable pressures on the National Health Service, it is difficult to articulate the value of a few different coloured bits of mud in a random field. A third option, therefore, is to use this moment as an opportunity to completely rethink archaeologists' engagement with the various systems that they occupy. 
Archaeologists tend to embrace the diversity of their respective ecosystems rather too much. For example, those providing archaeological planning advice to local authorities or those working uh, for national heritage agencies identify themselves as public servants. Those working in HEIs identify themselves as academics. Those in archaeological practice tend to identify themselves as being part of the construction industry or even an even smaller clique, I would say, of of diggers, as it were, shuffle bums, um, uh, you know, some people might say. Whilst they may, I go back to the paper, may uh, be all of these things, their primary identity should be as archaeologists. Otherwise, archaeologists risk becoming simply apologists for archaeology rather than its protectors and visionaries. And I would say that this also, actually, this is this is why I, I, I stop quoting. This also probably applies to our larger heritage bodies. We've talked in the past, for example, about historic England and whether or not they should be making judgment value value judgments on the economic benefits of certain um, projects or the 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 the, the, the long term value of certain parts of a battlefield, despite archaeological evidence, when it looks as though actually, uh, again, there's an economic component coming into it. We we should first of all be archaeologists and then from there bring in our our particular specialisms now, i think i think it's, it's, it's there's a lot to think about there and and i suppose is, are, we, are we encouraging a particular actual reading of this or is it more a case of just read it just read it and think folks read it and think look I, I, i'll fin finish with two thoughts um mm -hmm. one really i think illustrates the the problem that Belford is talking about here and the other one is, is the hope that he supplies at the end and mm. you know I think we, we, we're not talking about a, a potential archaeological dystopia here because there, there, there is there is a lot of hope in the paper but it requires the sector to actually respond mm. um, but the, the, the first thing I'd say is that um, I've just received uh, the latest copy of um, Private Eye magazine the satirical magazine I'm a subscriber um, and one of the um, spoof articles in it is um, archaeologists working on the HS2 have discovered the one of the biggest white elephant ever um, it, it's and in fact it's HS2 itself <laughs> now <laughs> that, is, that, that, that is referencing mm. you know, stories about mammoths and all sorts of other things that have turned up on the HS2 uh, sites that have been worked on by many many archaeologists mm. it's been a huge archaeological project mm -hmm. Um, but it, it was also highlighting how that archaeology can be used to effectively distract, in the worst cases, some would argue, greenwash mm. controversial projects like HS2, mm. which critics say is an environmentally destructive 1970s solution for a, a 20th, 21st century you know, transport issue, mm. if it's an issue at all. Mm. So, yeah, um, I'm not taking sides on HS2 at the moment here. I'm just throwing that out as a, uh, and I, I, and I know I've said before on, on watching briefs that archaeologists have to be aware of the wider political environmental world that they're working in. Um, well, well, and, I think, uh, I think... That, that, and one of the problems is, is being perceived as an apologist for. Yeah. I, and, and I think in that sense, what, what the end of the paper there and and what you have said in the past come together to advocate in that sense is is not being blind to the fact that 
like it or not, our voices and our expertise is perceived as mattering outside the little mm. offshoots that we put ourselves into. So if archaeologists are unquestioning about, for example, I don't know, building a road through uh, or underneath a, a, an international world heritage site, um, and uh, which one can you possibly be thinking? About? I, I don't know. I don't know. Um, and then that that project <laughs> is deemed to be uh, unlawful. Then archaeologists have have meandered into the realm of, again, not first of all being archaeologists, but rather first of all being part of a civic or indeed government engineering aspiration. And it's just a it's a weird one whereby we both have, first of all have to accept the the power of our perspective, and the fact that people want to deploy it therefore to greenwash or history wash or culture wash their projects. Mm-hmm. But also maybe understand and explore somewhat our limitations and again just to sort of point to something that you said in the past as well maybe therefore work with other people who have uh, convergent interests so we're interested in the historic environment maybe we should be working with people who are interested in the environment more broadly in which that history yes. is placed this kind of thing uh, sorry I, I, I know I've stepped in there again but what, what was the second thing you wanted to say well I, I just wanted to Jake, um, just highlight what um, what Belford says in in at the very end of the of the article, at the, the very end of the conclusion. And say, it is uh, hope rather than dystopia. Mm-hmm. Um, he makes the point that um, if archaeologists just go through life accepting the crumbs that we're offered, you know, it's very really really nice of you to lowest dig on your your development site, sir, before you send in JCB, sir. <laughs> Um, you know, uh, it, well, it'll always be a victim, and we're not victims. No. Um, what he says is that archaeology is meaningful research mm. that deploys a wide range of approaches from hard science mm. through social sciences, arts, and humanities. Um, and that's something, again, I, th- I think there's been too much emphasis, personally, I think there's been too much emphasis on archaeology as as a science it's mm. not it's better than that it's bigger than that mm. it's many more things than that and that's one of the things that as he says earlier on the article is that is one of the things that's a problem but also uh well it can be perceived as a problem mm-hmm. as, a, as opposed to something that enriches it mm-hmm. um but he also says and i think this is the crucial thing and i think this is the thing you know we're back to you know that deeply flawed human being, some Walter Wheeler, who's an archaeologist digging up people. Um, he said, archaeology is also a deeply practical human response to the need to know where we came from and where we're going. Mm. Um, and then he concludes by saying, archaeologists need to take charge of their own destiny. This is a crisis, and there is not a moment to lose if we are to safeguard the future of the profession. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, and, and I, I, I could just point out as well, because when you said initially in the conclusion that he said archaeology in the UK is in crisis, that's literally what the first sentence is, isn't it? It's, that yes. is it, full stop. Yes. You know, yeah. so, so he's not shying away from that at all. Yeah. Absolutely not. Mm. That's, that's, why, that's why I think this is such a powerful piece and deserves the widest possible circulation. Because uh, people will criticise much of it, parts of it, uh, people will take different views on it. Mm. Um, I, I, it. It is the most honest exposition i have seen from a senior archaeologist in a long long time i think okay so that's been this week's watching brief uh a lot to think about there a lot to to digest and uh, i i can't emphasize this enough genuinely consider uh maybe 
converse below with with uh, with your fellow viewers and and also share in particular that paper around a very interesting um, perspective on archaeology in the UK in 2022. Uh, next week we possibly have an interview or two in the pipeline. Uh, but but that's still coming together. We shall see. But regardless, obviously, our watching brief will continue next week. And until then, I suppose we would invite you to to get in touch. Is there, if there's anything that you want us to look at, any particular happenings in the world of archaeology um, or, or in, in your particular corner of the world, do get in touch in the email address on screen below. Uh, Andy's DMs are open on Twitter and I'm, I'm available in various places, uh, even a carrier pigeon. I'm happy to keep an eye out for one. Uh, <laughs> or an owl. Or an owl. Or an owl, exactly, yes. Um, or a raven. Or a raven, yeah, yeah. Oh, man. Oh, the other day, a raven completely messed up a project I was working on. That's, that's, that's another story. Um, I was like, oh, dear! Anyway, <laughs> anyway, guys, with that in mind, yes, do get in touch if you have anything you wanted to take a look at. Until then, do take care, and bye-bye. Uh, this podcast episode has been produced by the Archaeology Podcast Network in collaboration with ArcheoSoup Productions. Find out more podcasts at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com